Hi, quick disclaimer. After we recorded this episode, I noticed that my microphone cable was broken and the entire recording had a very distracting noise throughout. I was able to go in and use some noise reduction to sort of minimize this. So please excuse any strange sound or sound quality you might hear in this episode. We did our best. If there's nothing of substance in the world, if the ground we walk on is just a mirage, if reality itself really isn't, what are we left with? What do we hang our hat on? Magic. The stuff not ruled by rational law. That might not seem too comforting, but stay with me here. What's the height of the irrational, the zip code of the mysterious? Exactly. Starting off with the closing monologue of the episode. That was Chris's monologue to close out. Uh, this episode, Get Real, Season 3, Episode 9 of Northern Exposure. What exactly are we talking about, Charles? Well, we're talking about the 1990s CBS television sitcom series. Or television series. Sitcom sounds kind of goofy. But we're talking about <laughs> Northern Exposure. And this is the Northern Overexposure podcast, where we overanalyze every single episode of Northern Exposure. My name is Charles. My name is Lee. So I've seen the show um, quite, quite a few times. And this is Charles. This is your first time watching the every episode that we do. It's like sort of a new thing for you, right? Yeah, entirely new. Just marathoning Northern Exposure <laughs> through 2019 and now 2020. Yeah, we made it to 2020. And here we are, you know, season three. I wonder what the air date of this episode was. December 9th, 1991. There seems to have been a pause in programming in between the last episode and this episode, maybe a week or two off for Thanksgiving. And then again, if you look in the programming a little further ahead, we have the next episode and then another break before the new year, 1992. Oh, so okay. So kind of in, in, in the in-between right now. In between Thanksgiving and New Year's, we've got uh, two episodes. This is the first one. So thoughts on this episode overall? Ah, uh, hmm. Maybe a little bit meta, but this episode was about like traveling carnivals, traveling circuses and going in and out of the fray and delving into the mysterious. I kind of felt that this episode was similar in that I felt it was very empty, like nothing to latch on to. No, nothing concrete, just like how they can't latch onto anything concrete using the theories of quantum oh. physics or the just the a magic. traveling like a uh, vagabonds, you know, they're not. They're not settling down on anything. Yeah, and that's how I feel about this episode as well. Like a general listlessness. It's definitely not one of my favorite ones. I'll be outright and say that. <laughs> uh, not the worst episode, but it's not looking favorable for me. Well, we can say that oftentimes on shows like this, there is the status quo, right? It's like sort of everything has to sort of return to the status quo at the end of the episode. And this is definitely one of those episodes where it feels like if you took the characters at the beginning of the episode and compared them uh, how they are at the end of the episode, not a lot of change has happened. No, and the lessons that they do learn throughout this episode, I feel like are already learned in previous episodes. I feel like we're just revisiting some of the earlier themes. Uh, not the major theme, but let's take, for example, okay. Shelley and Holling. We've already had episodes where there is a disagreement about how their relationship should be approached or how Holling should view Shelley or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And we're just beating that same drum again. And that's, that kind of loses me. 
Same thing between Maggie and her love interest, particularly how it reflects onto Joel. I, he just mm-hmm. keeps going back and forth on that. And I mean, I just, I just want them to go ahead, like have permanent change with it. Well, I think this episode is fun for sure. There's a lot of fun in games, but I think what we're talking about here, uh, just overall is sort of that not, what does it amount to? You know, not a whole lot in the end. There's a lot that's is going on in this episode. And really, I just think it doesn't strongly connect with the plot. You know, there's a lot of thematic uh, questioning about, again, like the physics and magic and um, saying too much or saying nothing at all. You know, but I feel like these themes could have drawn a little closer to uh, the plot here and the characters when really we just sort of dance around them a little bit and kind of explore it. And it's fun to muse about but in the end, I don't think it really amounts to too much. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think there was a better way of approaching it. I understand that there's a major theme of uh, disillusion, like the shattering right. of the status quo, which is just what they're trying to go for for all the plot line. Like Shelley and Holly, there's a shattering between him not realizing that he loves every single aspect of her. There's Chris with the quantum physics and how that doesn't parlay into real life. And mm-hmm. then there's Joel realizing that he needs to go forward and he needs to bone up on his medical studies in order to catch up to his classmates. I understand the major theme of this. I just think that there's better applications for it. Yeah. And and again, we're, we're just kind of talking in a very blanket way. I don't think I'll go as far as you to say that I didn't necessarily... I, I like this episode, um, but I can definitely see its shortcomings. In the end, it kind of is a... It doesn't really fulfill all of its promises that it's set out to do. But I think let's go um, bit by bit and kind of start to unpack this episode. I think that'll help us really find the elements that we like and that we can latch on to. Because I think it's pretty clear sort of our disappointment in this episode. But but there's some cool, fun stuff to unpack here. Yeah, it's my little nuggets to, <laughs> you know, to find throughout. So we start off with this episode with Ed trying to fix his truck. And Ed's a capable mechanic. He knows what he's doing. But then we see what looks to be it's like, like a dozen or more people, right? Kind of walking up the path. Yeah, with a bear. Oh, yeah, there's, they are. There is a bear in tow. I forget about that. Because later in the episode, Hauling serves this bear uh, like a mug of ale, right? <laughs> what uh, that, is, can't, uh, nah, that, that can't be right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think bears are, you know... A lot of body mass, but I think that's still poison, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's already messed up that they keep this bear on a leash. I'm just going to come right out and say it. <laughs> yeah, we were kind of talking about zoos last episode. We kind of skipped over circuses. Yeah, I am. <laughs> mm, I think that there's a lot of animal cruelty in circuses. I'm not going to deny that. There is multiple reports and studies being found on the elephants and the tigers yeah. uh, and the bears that all have <laughs> mistreatments throughout the carnival history. I think that we are coming to an age where that's not necessary for our, our entertainment. Like I don't think we need oh. animals to be able to entertain us. Zoos have a purpose, whereas they're for conservation purposes and education. A circus is for entertainment, which is a whole different chapter on that. Mm, but yeah. I gotta say, as Some a key child, differences, yeah, yeah. As a child, I never really saw any circuses or carnivals. Like I don't think I've ever been to one. Have you? Uh, when I was very very young, and I almost don't remember it. I remember a clown. I think I was on top of an elephant. So yeah, this this is to show you how far away it was. Like I can't even fully remember, you know, what it was like. 
Um, but yeah, that's a thing, right? They, if you if you pay, you can like get up on the elephant and they'll like ride yeah. with you and stuff. Yeah, that's a thing. And I romanticize circuses and carnivals a lot. Like I wish we can go back to the days where there was a world fair. Like the vaudeville aspect or, or yeah, what? Yeah, I just, I like the idea of people coming together to see what new things the future lays or something yeah. that you don't ordinarily see every day. It's a great place to bring a date in my opinion. <laughs> and I romanticize it a lot, but... I understand the sort of it's um, obsolescence. Yeah, like it's not quite as needed today. Yeah, it's not really. Yeah, you know, people don't really go out for that. I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, spoiler alert: we are talking about the the people that are walking up this path to meet Ed. They're they're a traveling circus, right? Yeah, I skipped over that part, but <laughs> it's obvious we're talking about the circus. Is it okay to call them carnies? Um, I don't know. Isn't it, so carny is sort of a derogatory term, right? It sounds super derogative. <laughs> yeah, and these these seem like normal folk, right? So sort of the leader of this carnival circus troupe, what what you would call it. Um actually I believe Chris names them the Ludwig Wittgenstein Masquerade and Reality Company. So the leader of this uh company is represented as a dad. Like he's basically a magician who's a dad who's also studied physics, you know? So these seem like not your typical average sideshow uh, carny, you know? Yeah. Do we know what the dad's talent is in the circus? I believe he's a magician. So he does he does some uh, card tricks. Okay, so uh, he's like a sleight of hand magician then. That's what I thought, but right. I wasn't entirely too sure with him. And actually, we're going to kind of jump, jump around. Let's talk about him for a second. I... um. I love the scene where he's trying to guess Chris's age. They're in the brick, and he's got a he set up a trick with the dartboard. It's got a lot of um, pieces of paper kind of uh, tacked to the dartboard, mm-hmm. and he implores Chris to throw a dart, and that dart will land on a piece of paper that has his age on it. And as he's describing this magic trick, he says he's using physics. What does he say? He's claiming that his use of uh, quantum physics allows him to predict the outcome of this trick that he's performing. And Chris is sort of like smiling and, you know, Chris is a little in disbelief, maybe not, not totally trusting this guy. And they sort of chatted out sort of the nitty gritty, the science behind it. But what I think is really funny is um, this magician. What is his name? It's Steve, right? Steve Gould, Stephen Gould. His daughter is a recurring character in this episode, but as he's trying to do this trick, he sort of has a side dialogue with his daughter who he's always trying to be, you know, fatherly. He says something like, you should get steamed vegetables instead of the fried burrito that you're eating. But I think, I don't think they ever really um, dig into this, but I think the daughter, Nina, is part of the subterfuge of magic. You know, a lot of times magic is about misdirection. So as he's trying to fool Chris with this magic trick, he's constantly sort of breaking off and talking to Nina, his daughter. So it's just all the more confusing because there's multiple dialogues happening. There's the dartboard that you're focusing on, the quantum physics that Steven is uh, trying to impart, and Nina, who's like interrupting this train of thought. I thought that's cool. She kind of um, is sort of that factor in this episode, always sort of uh, interrupting and maybe adding to the subterfuge. Huh, I didn't pick up on that at all, and that's a really good catch. I do believe that that was... I think it's there, like it's part of the the ingredients of the 
meal, like the episode that they're making, but I don't think they really focus on that ingredient. No, to they its, don't. To its, to its like full potential. Yeah, and that's a good point that you brought up that she was probably there for misdirection for him to be able to pull off this trick. I remember seeing a magician when I was about 14 years old in Las Vegas. I was with my family and he was doing like all sorts of wonderful tricks. But I think one of the things that I thought was brilliant was that he used a lot of jokes in order to hide his material, just like a misdirection. Uh, One joke that I still think about to this day was that he was asking for us to give him donations and he directly would just follow it up with perfect timing would say like, and this all goes to the beer money. (laughs) And I never forgot that joke, even though it's a very simple one. But (laughs) yeah, I didn't think about the daughter being like a tool, like a prop for his act. Yeah, and it it does turn out that it's a simple sleight of hand and Chris catches it, but he's still very impressed by it. Um, I think what happens is after the dart sticks, Steve grabs the slip of paper and as he's crossing back towards Chris, he probably makes a switch out, like a change. And that's, you know, a lot of card tricks do that. It's like you do a lot of finesse and uh, a lot of show shuffling the cards, but really it all comes down to the very last part where you pull the card out and that's where you make the switch. You know? Yeah. Were, did you ever go through a magic phase where you wanted to learn how to do magic tricks? Yeah, I think maybe for like two weeks, I learned a magic trick a day and was trying to like, a card really? trick that is. I was trying to practice it. And from that, I only remember one. And every time I do it, I have to kind of practice it twice before I do it. So um, no, I don't think I'm a great magician. What about yourself? I don't know any magic tricks at all, but when I was younger, I wanted to be a magician. Yeah, like I, I wanted that to be like my gainful employment was to do magic tricks. Uh, yeah, it seems so cool, you know, when you're I a kid. I think it's so cool. And I know a lot of people like to dog it and they're like, oh, that guy's going to be a virgin forever. But like, <laughs> I think that it's such a fun, delightful thing to do, um, to be able to surprise people. And you could just do it at any moment with like a deck of cards. Yeah. But I also get how it's like a really goofy, like, well, it He's seems silly. Stupid. It seems silly, but it is sort of key to any sort of performance, like uh, playing music or uh, some people say film is like magic, you know, smoke and mirrors. You know, when mm-hmm. you're making a movie, it's all movie magic in quotes, you know. So just talking about uh, still, still in this dartboard scene, the way the scene opens up is actually pretty fun. There's a shot of what appears to be like a mouth juggler, like someone, it's sort of a close up on this person who's tilted their head back and is uh, juggling like a, maybe a ping pong ball with their mouth up and down. Yeah. And that's sort of like in the foreground of the shot. And then the camera moves and focuses on, you know, Steven and Chris and the whole dartboard. And also right before Chris makes his throw, uh, he calls out, he says, incoming. And there's a shot of someone who's like holding like a pool stick and he says, let her fly, and then exits the frame, and then the dart, like, hits the dartboard. <laughs> so it's a pretty cool sort of um, traffic jam, but uh, a nice management and sort of back and forth between the patrons of the brick. Yeah, a lot of care went into the direction of that scene. Mm. But I want to talk about the scene itself. Okay. Uh, this is where I don't think there's necessarily something wrong with the content. It's just this is my own personal problem with it in that – I hate it when people, both in real life and in television shows slash movies, talk about quantum physics. Oh, why is that? Not, it's not I that I know anything. Physics. I don't know anything about quantum physics. Uh, mm-hmm. I know like the bare bones about it, but it always seems like something that people talk about in order to appear smart. And that's always bothered me a lot. And, ah. and the whole 
shtick with this character, Steven, is that he's talking about the deeper that you go, the less you actually know. So like, mm, the deeper yeah. your molecules are you going into the quarks and everything, it turns out that reality is held by nothing but strings, stuff like that. And I never liked the entire concept about that. Not that I'm disagreeing that it doesn't exist. I just don't like it because people use it to say pseudo intellectual things. They'll be like, oh, and at the end, nothing really matters. I'm like, no, some things matter. I don't, no, I don't disagree. Yeah, so that means like this whole episode is not playing for you. Like that's kind of the whole core of this episode is the idea that the further you study something, the harder it is to understand. And even even what I just said is is sort of um, maybe giving too much to the premise. Like that's not exactly what you're uh, disliking, right? Yeah, no, I have no problem with that whatsoever. I, I agree with it at times. Like the more that you look into something, the more you're lost within the maze of your own thoughts. And yeah. sometimes you don't emerge out with a clear conscience. You, you, you get entangled and ensnared. My problem is that they're using the concept of quantum physics in order to show that not everything you know is concrete. Mm-hmm. The particles that we are made up of are constantly flowing and we're constantly changing there ergo there's no there's no real matter there it's just sort of like waves and in, in uh sorry i cut you off no, with, no, the, no, uh, that's okay. with the literal i guess and you're you're going for metaphors yeah what do you, what do you yeah what are you trying to grab here i just i think i'm annoyed by two things one yeah. is the pseudo-intellectual talks of quantum physics right they're just kind of scratching the surface and it makes them sound really smart when they're really not saying anything at all no, and I, I think there was like better ways of approaching the overall theme of disillusionment. Yeah, I think I'll agree with you there for sure. I think um, I think maybe better ways, um, maybe, but I think definitely they they just didn't really go so far to connect. You know what I'm saying? Like they didn't mm-hmm. really connect anything. It's just sort of the groundwork is being set up here, um, but they don't really follow through. Yeah. Well, I gave my whole gripe about not liking quantum physics, but you said that you do enjoy quantum physics. Why is that? Um, well, I mean, again, I am not an expert or scientist or anything, but I do like the idea that when you scratch the surface and try to think of things conceptually, kind of like Chris does, uh, he's not really looking at the numbers. He says something about, what does he say? Add, subtract, multiply, divide. But as soon as you get into fractions, you lose me. Mm-hmm. But really the concepts is what's, uh, the most entertaining part when you're in like a physics class, you know, sometimes they're hard to grasp, but that's what makes it sort of interesting. It's not the numbers, you know, the crunch about it. But whenever you do get to grasp with these abstract concepts, uh, it just is an interesting way to sort of think about reality. And the whole theme of this episode, uh, at least where quantum physics is concerned, as you already said, perhaps everything is just an illusion. When you really look down at the subatomic level, what is the quote? Everything is so bizarre, so unfathomable. With magic, you have some control. So they're kind of drawing between something that seems unexplainable, magic. Uh, really, you have a lot of control because it's all sleight of hand. And that's what we learn in sort of this first interaction with the dartboard. It seems like there's no control, but you're actually pulling the strings. Whereas with uh, quantum physics here, the comparison is uh, the more and more you study it and the closer you get to it, you have to maybe live with the fact that it's unexplainable. Yeah, I get what you mean. Like it's a paradox of sorts. Right. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, and I like that a lot too. And that quotation was one of my favorites that mm-hmm. I heard in the entire episode. But yeah, I, I I will side with you. You know, sometimes, especially in this dartboard scene, you can talk about quantum physics and they're actually not really talking about anything. And the things that they are um, agreeing to or conversing about 
it's it's very small in scope and it doesn't really fit the whole like the conversation they're not really talking about much but it sounds like they're talking about a lot it's more of an intellectual exercise i guess that they're trying to partake in and the dad steven even says that like he was a physics professor he was studying all about it and then he decided to take his wife and his daughter out to the circus because he wanted his daughter to experience more to life than what was within the textbooks yeah i get that i think that's a fair thing to do for your children to broaden their scope I think that some things need to be grounded, though. Like, okay, I, well, I actually don't even think that was really responsible for him. Like, he gave up. <laughs> like, w- w- did he give up his tenureship to go bring his daughter out on the wild car- traveling I mean, carnival? I see what you're saying. He's like, can he not provide for his family? But it seems like he's providing. Like, she's healthy and uh, they're not starving, right? Yeah, I know. Like, I sound like I'm coming off as like super conservative. <laughs> and, like, coming off as like I'm against new ideas whatsoever. Uh I just seem like sometimes Northern Exposure does this a lot where they say like, no, look at this new alternative idea that we want to progressive. present. Very yeah, progressive. very progressive. <laughs> and sometimes they knock it out of the park. I'm like, oh, you, you're raising a reasonable, ah, great uh-huh. point. I never thought about it. Other times I look at him like, that's way too new age for me. Even though this was done in 1991. I'm like, that's no, no. 30 years ago, it's too new age, yeah. <laughs> no, nah, what, are you, okay, what okay. are you saying, hippie? No. <laughs> no, it definitely is. It seems like a very irresponsible thing for a parent to do. But I will say that's what's surprising you don't expect someone from the circus to be a parent and to be a physicist. By the same token, you don't expect a parent to be such a vagabond with their child. But I think at least the way this episode presents it seems to be working out. It seems to be a healthy uh, lifestyle. And there's so much. We're, we're kind of touching on certain things. I'm trying to decide what to, what to pin to next. Rather than jump around in the episode, maybe we kind of stick in this beginning uh, of the episode, and, and we can talk about The Flying Man. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this whole plot line? Real fast. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I definitely cut you off because I saw you are about to jump in, but I just wanted to credit um, the actor Bill Irwin. That's the man who plays The Flying Man. Uh, his business card apparently says Enrico Bellotti, but apparently his actual name in the show is Bob Wilson. So, Charles. What do you think about the flying man? What is a flying man exactly? Man who flies. Like that's his trick? Yeah, that's that's what's kind of happening in this episode. It's like the flying man, right? Does that mean he can fly? And that, I think I think it's an unanswered question of the episode. It's like, so does he fly? And there is a scene where we sort of get an answer to that. And I, th- I think it's sort of the the cool masterstroke of the episode is, is that shot. But uh, we can talk about that in a second. But not to get too far ahead, yes, my answer is, yeah, the flying man, uh, he flies, right? That's huh. what he does, right? Okay. I, I, I thought about that, but I yeah. thought it was too on the nose. Like, I thought it was like, <laughs> oh, it must be something else that he does that alludes to being like, I do think flight. it's funny and interesting that no one really questions it. They're like, oh, yes, of course, you're the flying man. I don't think anyone really believes it. But I think there is, well, I guess we should talk about it. There's that scene when Joel is, uh, he gets into his car and he sees the flying man out of the passenger side window. He's like, oh, hey, how's it going? Um, well, he starts his car up, starts driving. And, you know, the flying man is like just doing like some jogging. But Joel starts driving. He gets far ahead of him. Joel is also in the scene. He's sort of like uh, quizzing himself with his textbook as he's driving. Mm-hmm. Really quick interjection. I just wanted to say this is why the show is not about medicine because my God, is this the most boring like 30 seconds of TV when Joel is just like quizzing himself on medicine. And obviously we don't want a show that's 
about, you know, textbook. We want just a show that's about doctors and patients and stuff. Anyway, the, the shot never cuts. We're just stuck with Joel in this car. And when Joel, I guess, finally reaches a stop sign, I don't know, maybe like a quarter mile down the road, he catches up to the flying man who somehow uh, has beat him. He's like sweating now as if he were jogging or perhaps flying. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what the trick of the shot is supposed to imply is that the flying man just flew over Joel as he was driving. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it's sort of to, I guess it's kind of to demonstrate that vocal communication is not necessary because here is a mute man who's able to, quote unquote, travel farther than anyone. Yeah, he can like uh, perform these feats of superhuman abilities and stuff like that, but he doesn't choose to speak. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, like he's broadened his mind or something like that. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Something to show that he's beyond an ordinary human being. He has supernatural powers. I think that he's an okay character. That's the only reason I have for him not speaking other than just a quirk. Yeah. No, that that is interesting. It is. I really like the the quirk of not speaking, and, and we've seen this before in season two, episode... Two, the big kiss. Yeah, the big kiss where Chris loses his voice to the uh, woman. And I do like that in that episode. You know, we get to see a character sort of pantomime and I don't know. It's really, it is incredibly charming when the flying man does it in this episode. But I do wonder, is he like a little, Do you did you get the sense that he was sort of pushy? I mean, obviously Marilyn, oh, who he's yeah. trying to court, says, no, I'm not interested. And she turns him down probably over 20 times in this episode. But um, for some reason, why do I think that's charming? I don't know. I think it's it's charming because he's the way he's doing it is that he's just pantomiming the actions and he's like a little bit quirky and it's it looks fun. Yeah. But if it was using words, it, it would, would not be, be fun. No, yeah, you're no. right. And I thought that that was kind of a uh, like wrong of him. In I don't the, know. I'm in always... The end, in the end, Marilyn does like him. You know, she is... I guess it turns out that she was just playing hard to get or maybe rather, like, I don't know. But in the end, she seems very happy with them, even though she does return sort of to the status quo at the end of the episode and she's single again. But for what it's worth, it seems like she is not interested, but is very happy to date him as they're dating, you know? Yeah, she's happy to have the experience of being with the flying man. I'm just trying to see the entire purpose of that plot line. Like she is single, then she is with the flying man after constant rejection and finally going out with him. Mm-hmm. She likes the flying man and then she can't or won't travel with him with his uh, traveling circus. So she remains back to the status quo. I'm trying to figure out what that plot line is trying to teach us. That is it trying to say like, oh, don't worry about what you are feeling right now. Like take risks or. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so like that would sort of be the mindset of the flying man of the traveling circus is like you have to be open to change and and taking risks. But your initial question, like how does this fit in with this episode? I really don't see a whole lot of thematic ties except for one. It's sort of a loose application of this one theme, but I think it ties in in a small way to the Shelley and Holling plot line. I'll play a soundbite from their whole... Interaction. Basically, what's happening is Holling notices that Shelley has inordinately large feet, and this is a turnoff for him. And he believes that he's falling out of love with Shelley. 
And he tells her this, and it really hurts her feelings, obviously, because um, it's not nice when someone tells you you have unattractive qualities, right? Yeah. So this is what she says to Holly. You know, some things when you say them, you can never unsay them. You can't take them back. I know, Shelly. And some things when you say them, they change everything. The rest of that scene develops with Holling sort of outwardly musing, like, what would have happened if I just didn't say anything about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but think about the flying man who doesn't say anything at all. It's kind of a stretch to connect these, but obviously if you're a writer and you're trying to think about all, all your bases, um, there is some significance to the fact that the flying man doesn't say anything and Hauling is a person right now who wishes he never said anything. Oh, I didn't catch that. That's really clever. I don't think it's a very strong application of the theme, but there is a connection there. Yeah, there's definitely something there to deal with the ability to speak and not to speak at certain times. Now, what that has to do with Marilyn and this whole plot of the episode, it, it doesn't really hit hard as a resolution necessarily. There's just sort of like a harmony happening, not really like a um, climax Mm-hmm. But there's just these these interesting connections between the plot lines. Yeah. I think the best way to sum up this plot line for me is an actual scene from this episode. And it's uh-huh. the one where they're having what looks like a powwow of sorts. Like they're all outside just having like, oh, is next it to the, the fire. Cir- like the Cirque du Soleil performance thing? Yeah, yeah. The performance that they're having. And then <laughs> they're together. And then he gets up and he pulls out like a <laughs> rag from like his his, his uh coat and he starts dancing with it this was the weirdest and all i could write like i have it literally on my notes where i said like wait i don't understand what was the trick (laughs) like (laughs) yeah that that was very surprising i was very confused by that sequence that whole sequence of events summed up that entire plot line like what is (laughs) what what is the point like what he sits Um, back down too like nothing changes it's not like yeah the ending of the scene is just like he sits back down God, that's so weird. Yeah, I don't. I really don't understand that scene because here's my thought. It's like you have a circus in the first scene of the episode. You have a circus coming in. Promise of the premise. There's got to be like a circus act. We got it. We have to see it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so this is the scene where we. And Joel is sort of our window because we see Joel. He just kind of sits by the wall and he's just kind of watching from afar and kind of uh, bemused by this spectacle, taking it in. And yeah, it's the the promise of the premise, the circus act, but it's just kind of confounding. We see this contortionist who's sort of painted up like a leopard or, or some wildcat, and there's a lot of fire. It's unexplained. It's not particularly fascinating. There's no crazy acrobatics or anything really, right? And then there's the dance with the rag, which... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's just, the like, best way to sum up. We just, we just stared at each other in silence. <laughs> like, what does that mean? I um, I would I, love to hear if anyone has any interpretations of this. Yeah, thing. I'm not saying there isn't any interpretation <laughs> of this. In yeah. fact, I might be a bozo and just I'm not seeing it. It which lost. Is clearly being it was presented lost to on me. us. I think. Yeah, exactly. Maybe there's like color symbolism that they were missing. Like the rag was purple. It's like I a thought mixture. it was blue. Is it? I don't know. Maybe I'm colorblind. <laughs> yeah. Either way, something tells me I don't think the color is a big. <laughs> big factor, but I don't know. Maybe you're on to something. I thought it was going to be one of those tricks where you pull out... Um, a never-ending rag. Yeah, or like a rag's all like tied together and then suddenly he starts pouring them out of his mouth and stuff. It I was like, sort oh, of this is going to be a cool trick. It sort of is that It's because it's kind of a long rag, but then also it's just short enough to where you're like, yeah, that fits in your pocket. It's yeah, like exactly. Not, <laughs> it's not long enough. Um, yeah, kind of a weird scene. Here's another offer 
uh, as to why this plotline is included in uh, this episode. Uh, it seems like an easy romance subplot, you know, like movies, uh, especially like American cinema tends to have uh, a romance subplot. And this is our little uh, romance subplot for the episode. Not very typical for every episode of Northern Exposure. You know, usually the romance is uh, some sort of flirtation between Joel and Maggie, but maybe they just really wanted to, um, to have a nice, some nice moments with Marilyn, who, by the way, incredible acting in this episode. You know, she's often not given the chance to, to flex those acting muscles. And, you know, she, she's never giving a, a big performance. They're all really small and kind of quiet and almost monotonous in a way. But I was really moved by her acting in this episode. Yeah, I thought she did a great job as well. I thought the one thing that at least this plotline gave us was the music they used between... Were you able to figure out? I could not figure out what uh, music is playing. It's I good. couldn't either, but <laughs> all I could think of, like it kept reminding me of the Apollo 13 theme music. Whoa. No, I don't Same chords, that. I think. Yeah, and that's all I can think of wow. every single time. And I think the theme returns like five times in this it, episode. It happens a lot, and it's in the. It's definitely between uh, Bob, the Flying Man, and Marilyn. I think it happens once with, when it's just like the circus troupe. But Moose Chick lists this song as Bolero by Cirque du Soleil. Oh. I did a YouTube search for it. That's not what I was hearing on the DVD. In fact, unless I was listening to the wrong thing, I actually prefer the DVD soundtrack. I know we always uh, make a big fuss about how the DVDs uh, oftentimes will change the music from original broadcast. Every once in a while, I find myself a little blasphemous, but I, I prefer the DVD uh, soundtrack versus the, <laughs> the original broadcast. Yeah, I agree. I think that the DVD was much better than what what, what did you say it was, Blaireau? Uh, yeah, Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Blaireau. Soleil. Well, I, I think it's much more better. So at yeah. least it gave us that. <laughs> but yeah, just before we leave the Flying Man, a couple more things. You know, we said, somehow I'm charmed by him. You know, the way whenever Marilyn tells him, you're wasting your time, he takes his wristwatch and turns it upside down. And that was kind of nice. Kind of gestures like, I don't care, it doesn't matter. You know, he's, ah, he's so dang charming. I mentioned the actor is Bill Irwin, but I didn't mention he's uh, famous for a lot of roles, but you may recognize him as the father in Rachel Getting Married. But probably the most popular role, he was the voice of TARS in Interstellar, you know, like the moving, like, blocky robot. That's, he's the voice of Wait, that. Wait, the Christopher Nolan movie? Mm-hmm. I never saw that. Oh, well, what's funny is obviously he doesn't use his voice in this episode. And then in that movie, it's just his voice. There's no, there's no body, <laughs> you know? So, oh, maybe, I don't think it's related. This is going to be a tough stretch for me to connect it. But I do know that the modern circus is derived from Charlie Chaplin's daughter, I believe. And Charlie Chaplin was known for, you know, his movies in the yeah, silent era. Uh-huh. So oh, maybe there's okay. something to be connected there. I'm pretty sure that's just a coincidence. Yeah, I see what you're saying. They're sort of using uh, the the fact that the Flying Man is mute as sort of a ode to silent cinema or silent film. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I doubt it though. No, it's a it's a nice comparison though when you to think about silent film uh, in this context. One last thing in that scene when uh, Marilyn sort of breaks up with the Flying Man, it's alluded that. The flying man expects Marilyn to join him. You know, they can go live together and travel with the circus, but it's not going to work out really. Marilyn, I like the reasonings she presents. I mean, obviously she says she has family, she has work here, 
But if she were to travel with them, she would just be the flying man's girlfriend. You know, she doesn't have a circus act. She's not really part of the team. She's just um, a partner to him. And I think she even invites the idea that it's like maybe he could stay with her, but that's quickly dispelled because obviously he's like, he's got to fly. That's what he gestures. You know, you have to fly, I think she says. And it reminded me of uh, sort of this little anecdote in the Wong Kar Wai movie, Days of Being Wild. There's a story about a kind of bird without legs that can only fly and fly and sleep in the wind when it's tired. The bird only lands once in its life, and that's when it dies. So for some reason, I was reminded of this idea. You know, Bob the Flying Man has to continually sort of be a vagabond his whole life, sort oh. of like the in the story of Days of Being Wild, sort of a selfish, romantic idea of uh, never settling down, you know? and Yeah, and I like that. That's a really good... It's poetic. Yeah, very poetic. You have to keep traveling. Maybe Bob is continually soul-searching. Yeah. Maybe he's searching for his voice so that when he does speak, he can finally find it. Wow, that's a good... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I will uh, toss in a little spoiler. Uh, the Flying Man, Bob, will return in a later episode. Oh, really? At least once. Pretty sure, according to my memory. So... We can reevaluate his character uh, if and when we see him again. Oh, okay. So where should we jump to from here? I guess we could talk about something negative, even though I've only been talking about things negative. Yeah. Uh, I big yeah. thumbs down for me from the Shelley Holly one because I it's a really shallow reason for me, but I'm just really tired of talking about Holly and Shelley's fights about their marriage. I. I like well, they're the, not married. Oh, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, about getting they're married. talking about getting married and their uh, relationship troubles. I like what Shelly said in their quotation about how some things can never be put back together once you say them. I really like that idea. There are some times in life where you say something, it's irreversible. Mm -hmm. And you can try to apologize. You can try to say sorry. Or you can try to say, I didn't mean that. It doesn't matter. It's like a like we're in a boat and suddenly there's a hole in it and there's water just coming in. There's no way you're fixing that hole once you're out in the ocean. Like mm -hmm. The only way you can do is try to live with the water and try to funnel it out. But it's become <laughs> part of your identity, whatever you just did. I like that a lot. I just don't like having to go through Shelly and Holling again. I wish they would have used two other characters. Here's my hot take. This plot line of the episode is the most fully realized of all the plot lines in this episode. So I agree with you. It's almost, <laughs> I almost thought it was going to go one way because Holling is like staring at Shelly's feet. And uh -huh. I was like, oh gosh, oh, yeah, this is too. the episode where he admits that he's got the foot fetish because last episode he was talking about her painting her toenails. Oh yeah, one out of three like, men, man. If, <laughs> wait, no, one out of three, one wait, out of four. Is that true? <laughs> it's something like that, man. It's a pretty strong percentage. Hey, we can't, it's, uh, you know, we can't shame anyone. Oh no, I'm, I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not. <laughs> Human sexuality is um, very complex and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But for some reason, uh, it's the flip. You know, you think that Holling is obsessed with Shelly's feet, but it turns out, like we said already, the feet are sort of um, the beginning, sort of the catalyst for him thinking that maybe he's falling out of love with her. And God, it's such a weird topic, right? I mean, um, especially the age gap. But I'll say this. Oftentimes, it's really easy to write off Shelly as just being immature, um, overreacting, kind of being childish. 
But I think we should always try to look past this sort of like baseline humor because I think it's played for laughs most of the time. Mm -hmm. But if we just look past it and really see what they're talking about, um, and obviously we're both kind of talking about the idea of like once you say something, you can't unsay it. That is sort of the theme here. I think there is a lot to be learned from this quarrel that they're having more than it just being sort of a, um, a bump in the road. This to me is the most fully realized uh, plot where the characters start out in one way and they end in, in a different way at the end of the episode. Shelley comes around to telling Maggie that she's forgiven Hauling and she can tell that he's sorry. Things aren't going back to how they were. They've definitely changed. She says, you know, I'll never be able to undo this, but at least now, you know, there's things about Hauling that I don't like and I can tell him that, you know, we are able to grow uh, even with this sort of bump in the road. And I think that's, you know, every other plot line sort of uh, returns to the status quo or doesn't really fully reach its potential. Whereas this one, uh, simple, but, you know, it has beginning, middle, and end. Oh, yeah. Okay. Now that you bring that up, that is a reasonable... It's no, detestable. It's, it's, it's weird. It's, you know, it's always... Holling and Shelley are always tricky and we're finding that out more and more as our like guests come on but mm -hmm. yeah i think that you're right it shows growth in it it even shows growth in maggie yeah it reflects off of into that oh yeah we haven't really been talking about maggie yeah so maggie's whole thing is that from what i can gather in this episode is that she is trying to find independence or strength in celibacy yeah and not being with somebody and she's like you know i'm okay with that and you being with hauling is actually making you a weaker person and all of that yeah yeah and she i has think that, whole that what she says what she has to say is valuable to a degree yeah. i understand that you need to be able to live by yourself you need to find happiness within yourself before you can even latch on to another individual i understand that perfectly i think that's a very valuable lesson for people to learn especially nowadays where people at least in my opinion i'm going to sound like an old man yelling at the clouds i think that it's very important for you to find self-realization and happiness within yourself rather than go on yeah. like a dating app and like try to be with somebody because you just can't bear to be alone i think that maggie raises very great yeah. points about it however yeah uh you know, there's always a, a counter argument and that Maggie is showing that and she's shown some growth in this episode. We're like, that's true. Oh, like maybe I need to be seeking like a different type of man in order to see what I'm missing out on. Yeah. There's that scene where Maggie is talking with Shelly and I almost thought she was sort of overcompensating because she's sort of saying things like, we don't need men. Isn't it great if we were just self-sufficient? And I thought at first, like, okay, maybe she's overcompensating. Uh, but I think she is speaking some honesty, and she really believes that. And that is kind of what she struggles with in this episode. Celibacy or settling down with someone. In this case, in this episode, that someone could be, you know, Joel, who she's constantly thinking about but questioning uh, whether she should or she shouldn't. Or maybe it's this burly man, the, you know, the palm reader predicts, that she's going to marry someone that's just like every one of her exes that have died in the past, you know? Yeah, she needs to diverge from the path, yeah. is what they're trying to say. And she realizes, you know, what she has to do to be happy. I, I love that scene where she gets her palm read. Her husband sounds amazing, like tall, handsome, very macho. But Maggie can tell, she asks, I'm not going to be happy, am I? So she knows that to find happiness, maybe she's got to try something new. Really, in the end, she's constantly asking herself that question. Do I want to be celibate? Do I want to be with another guy that's just like the rest? 
how am I going to find my happiness? And uh, it's kind of represented in a very funny way at the end of this episode when, you know, Joel is learning to juggle mm-hmm. very poorly. <laughs> hey, juggling is cool. Yeah, ju- no, <laughs> I don't juggling. Know, I don't know why she was looking at him with such disdain. Unless well, it was his inab- yeah, unless it's inability to juggle, to which then I understand. But if it was for the act of juggling, yeah. well, no, come well, on. Well, what's so funny about the cutting, like the edit of that scene is she's like walking by Joel and she's trying to push him out of her mind. He's like, hey, O'Connell, check this out. And he's like juggling <laughs> and keeps dropping it. And then she sees this really handsome man unloading the, you know, his trunk. And he's like, oh, hey there. Then it's like, Maggie, check this out, O'Connell. And it's like, she's looking back and forth between this like, you know, nerdy doctor who sucks at juggling and just this <laughs> handsome sort of like lumberjack of a man. Look, this would be so easy for me. I mean, physically, you're like my perfect fantasy. What? Well, clearly the sex would be fabulous. I mean, you're strong, you've got a perfect back, I can just feel my arms and legs wrapped around you. Excuse me? We'd be all over the room and go on for hours and hours. And the kids, oh yeah, I can see that the kids would be incredibly beautiful, but even with all this, it's just not enough. I'm sorry. I want to be happy. And it's funny because it, it cuts really fast out of that scene. Yeah, comedy's <laughs> all in the editing. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a quick edit there. I have to say that Maggie uses a lot of famous women as examples for celibacy. And one of them she uses is Amelia Earhart. Oh. And this is just a rumor, but apparently Amelia Earhart and Eleanor Roosevelt were together. Oh, wow. Where'd you hear that rumor? Uh it, the the internet <laughs> <laughs> it is 2020 yeah that's where i heard about it and apparently one of the more famous encounters within the tube is that one time amelia Earhart went to the white house Ooh. and she was having dinner with the roosevelts and all like other famous people that just had to come for the dinner and she was seated next to eleanor roosevelt and at the time airplane travel was a relatively new concept and Amelia, along with Eleanor, were getting really bored with the conversation. And Amelia turned to Eleanor, supposedly, and said, hey, do you want to, like, come on my airplane? Like, do you want to come along for a quick ride? And Eleanor said yes. So they excused themselves from the dinner. And then Eleanor and Amelia got into Amelia's aircraft. And they just had, like, a nighttime flight, which was really romantic. I can't stop thinking about the, you know, the sweetness and how amazing that must have felt. That's probably one of those grounding moments in both of their lives. And then they took a short little travel. I, I want to say to New York. I'm, I could be wrong though. And they flew <laughs> back and they went back to the White House to resume dinner. Nice. So apparently Amelia wasn't celibate, but this is all just hearsay. Yeah, this is just the internet, you know, <laughs> which is 100% true all the time. Of course. <laughs> well, before we wrap up Maggie, I did just want to say her entrance into this episode it occurs like 20 minutes into the episode and it's when, um, I can't remember her name, but it's the mother of Nina, uh, Stephen's wife, who's the palm reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's in Ruth Ann's store looking for, what is Parallel interface cable? Do you know what that is? No. Do you know what it is? I figured you would. Yeah. Well, the only thing I can think of is like a parallel port uh, on old computers, sort of like for a printer maybe. Maybe that's what she's talking about. I've never hmm. heard of something referenced as a parallel interface, but I guess that's what it is, right? That's yeah. Anyway, so the palm reader, the mom, is in Ruthann's store, and just as she starts reading Ruthann's palms, uh, Maggie enters the scene. I'm like, oh, cool, Maggie's in this episode. I almost forgot about her, and um, <laughs> really, she doesn't do anything in this scene. She just watches and she says, 
ah, but that's so, <laughs> so I was like, wow, Maggie finally enters the show 20 minutes in and she does nothing. Um, but no, I am glad that she has this whole sort of realization and this, this question in her mind, you know, how is she going to be happy? Will she be celibate? Will she finally settle down with Joel? Still unanswered, but we can tell that she's, she's got this, um, sort of dilemma in her head. Yeah, I get the dilemma and everything. I kind of wish that they would use Maggie in more capacity than just love, and especially a relationship with another man. Oh, yeah. Well, I wonder. That's really interesting. I think there are some episodes where uh, she does have sort of um, her own agency, and, uh, you know, but but usually she is, no matter what, even when it's not romantic, her storylines usually tie in with Joel, right? Can't think of anything where she's kind of like solo. No. There might be, but there will be, but I I don't think we've seen a whole lot of it yet. Yeah, I would say that the only time that, at at least from my recollection, that Maggie's plot didn't directly involve romance and even, oh gosh, it actually totally does. I'm just thinking it over. (laughs) It's the one where she's with her father. Yeah, but that's with Joel. And I thought, for a split second, I thought that whole storyline was about her trying to gain like independence and try to detract from what her father thought of her, which no, is, there is that, there yeah. is that, yeah. but it, it's the always content of that yeah, is says. about her selection of men. So, so once again, returning to that, I mean, even whenever there is romance, she is sort of a um, proponent of feminism and she makes a lot of really interesting uh, points and arguments. So unfortunately, even though she does represent that, usually all of her plot lines will still somehow encompass uh, a romance with Joel. That's not to say that's all that it is, because there is, you know, a little more complexity than that. But um, we'll make an effort to point it out if we find a plot line that doesn't involve Joel at all, and it's just Maggie. Mm. I think we'll find one if we haven't already. So instead of the Bechtel test, we can call it, like, the Joel test? Yeah, I guess. The Fleischman test. The Fleischman test. Well, should we move on to uh, Fleischman? Yeah. Who has... Kind of a strange plot line. I'm not going to say that it's uh, negative or positive. It's kind of just meandering, in my opinion. Yeah, I think there is sort of an ending to be found here, but let's start from the beginning. Basically, he's reading, I think, what is um, an alumni magazine. So he's reading about his peers back from med school. Yeah, he's seeing what his old classmates are up to. And one of them uh, is similarly elected to serve in the Alaskan tundra, uh, as he calls it at times. Uh, so he he gets joy when he hears that this classmate that he really didn't like uh, is sort of stuck in the same position that he is. But yeah. he's very upset when he learns that some schmuck, some idiot that he was classmates with is now what heralded as a great doctor. Yeah, he's on some important board or something like that. I, I wanted to say that the classmate that was stuck in Alaska, uh-huh. he was a naval station attic. Okay. And that place actually closed in oh, 1997 wow. and reopened as an airport. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. But back to Joel, he's unhappy with the way his life is. Like he currently feels that he's in a rut in the middle of the Alaskan tundra. He's not forwarding his education in any way. He's not getting anything. He feels like, what did he say? I'm not a physician. I'm a medic. Meanwhile, my, my classmates, people with, with far less abilities than myself, are carving out major lucrative careers. Which is true. I imagine that Sicily isn't having any major health issues over here. So Joel feels that he's not progressing. And so he digs up his old textbooks with Ed. They're opening these boxes and he relates the story of uh, the movie, The Birdman of Alcatraz. Uh, he says, I'm going to use my time, you know, imprisoned as it were, uh, to better myself. And 
Ed is going to help him sort of quiz himself. He wants to, I believe he says he wants to get board certified for uh, internal medicine and then endocrinology. I don't know. In some amount of time, he will be Dr. Joel Fleischman, MD, FACP, which I looked up. FACP is Fellows of the American College of Physicians. So some... It's some fancy schmancy title. Yeah. That means you're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> yes. And throughout this episode, you know, as we said, he's constantly quizzing himself, sort of like that scene when he's driving alongside the flying man. And finally at the end, he, I think it's kind of in the same shot where he like puts down the books and goes and uh, sort of becomes a spectator for uh, the circus, you know. So really the only sort of conclusion or compliment that I can draw with this plot line in the, in the plot of the episode as a whole is sort of kind of what Chris is hinting at in his radio monologues. The idea that, uh, what does Chris say? The rationalists are taking over, trying to put a rope around reality. And he says, once you get down into subatomic particles, you're in a place that refuses to play by any rules. And it almost suggests that, you know, for Joel, it's like he's literally trying to study something a little too deeply. And what Chris is uh, prescribing is, he says, you know, step back a little bit and just uh, wonder at the mysterious in a way. It's an interesting um, frame of mind, but I don't really see how that's any sort of conclusion for Joel in the end. Like Maybe just, I guess, yeah, it's trying to say that, Joel needs to step back and smell the roses. Yeah. And he does read a poem, The Red, Red Rose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. But at the very end, there's like, there's a connection between all of the stuff that's happening in this episode. There's a connectiveness for sure. But like, what does it amount to? You know, that that's, I think, what we were talking about at the very beginning of this podcast. It seems to all be spinning together, but not going anywhere. Yeah. Like I get the ingredients that they're trying to use to make this dish. It just, maybe they added a little bit too much vinegar. Maybe they didn't add enough salt. I don't know. My cooking metaphor is falling apart, right? Well, it's like they, they, the dish isn't good. They did all the prep and they didn't put it in the st- in the oven. Oh, there we go. You finished my metaphor perfectly. <laughs> Can we talk about that poem that he reads at the end? Red, yes. red rose. Yeah. Uh, Hit me with it. A red, red rose was done by Robert Burns, the Scottish poet who you may know, from some song that you just heard recently. Can you guess? Oh, is he the man behind Auld Lang Syne? Yes, exactly. He composed Auld Lang Syne. Uh, well, the lyrics for it, I guess. Yeah, or? he did the lyrics for it. He also wrote Scott's Way He, which was the unofficial anthem of Scotland. Interesting. He also wrote Coming Through the Rye. I don't know if I recognize that. You would recognize it in its application of Catcher in the Rye. Oh. It's the one that Holden misinterprets. Mm. Yeah. Where the title, I guess, of the book comes from. And isn't that like sort of a dream he had or something? Yeah, where he believed that he would be, I think, like underneath With the, the cliffs, catcher's mitt or something. Yeah, the catcher's mitt catching to children, but he totally misunderstands the poem, mm. as most teenagers do. But yeah, Robert Burns, <laughs> amazing man. <laughs> yeah, it's a great way to end the episode. Yeah, what do you think the significance of using this poem is? I guess you said sort of like stop and smell the roses. But uh, the poem is being read over this sort of closing montage as the circus company is leaving town and we get the sense that, you know, the flying man is waving goodbye, you know, and so it's sort of the end of a, 
of a beautiful romance, perhaps, between Marilyn and the Flying Man. Apart from that, what do you draw from this poem? You know, I'm in the same boat as you. I'm pretty sure that a Red Red Rose is talking about long-distance love, which could relate to Marilyn and the Flying Man. That's about all I can get from it, though. Not like that's not all I understood for the poem. I mean, like how it relates a- applies to here, the yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah. There is, I think, one of the greatest shots I've seen in Northern Exposure during this montage as the bus is uh, driving away, leaving town. There's a shot of Holling and Shelly. Shelly has her arms wrapped around Holling's waist. And Holling is waving goodbye with like a, a rag in his hand, like saying goodbye. And uh, next to them, Maggie is is sort of standing around with her hands in her pocket, biting her lip, you know. Do you remember this um, yeah. image? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Something about that says so much because it shows, you know, the forgiveness of Shelly back with Holling, uh, the bittersweet emotions whenever you say goodbye. And it shows that Maggie is still unsure about things, you know. She's uncomfortable. Just... Um, the body language that Janine Turner is displaying in this uh, this shot is pretty incredible. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful shot. The, the thing that caught my attention at the very end was not that particular portrait, but of the wild dogs. Yes. Dog Watch 2020. Yeah, so we're in 2020 now. So we got two dogs, right? In yeah. This, is it two or three? I think two. it's two. Yeah. And they come and grab Joel's juggling <laughs> balls as he drops them and they start like running away. <laughs> yeah, he's... Uh, Failing at juggling once again, and um, the dogs sort of like go after these sort of tennis balls or whatever it is that he's juggling. Yeah, it's it's funny. Almost in in every sort of uh, sprawling wide shot that Joel is a um, a part of, you know, on the exterior of um, Sicily, like the the main streets, there's always a dog jumping at him or something, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is a great uh, recurring bit, I think. That he struggles with these dogs that are always, they always want to play with them. Yeah. Okay, before we wrap up this episode, uh, there's a quote from Maggie that I really like when she's talking to Shelley. I mean, I'm almost 30, and I'm beginning to realize that this whole idea of the male-female relationship is inherently flawed. I just don't think it can work. Why not? Well... Because you're either lovers, or you're wanting to be lovers, or you're trying not to be lovers so you can be friends. I mean, any way you look at it, sex is always looming in the picture, like a shadow, like an undertow. And that just reminded me of, you know, like when Harry met Sally. Oh my God, that was what I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. I was looking up the soundbite and Charles was like, I think I know where you're going with this. <laughs> but uh, go ahead. What did, you, what did you have to say? Yeah, exactly what you were going to say. Like in When Harry Met Sally, where I think it's in the first. It happens a lot, right? The question keeps coming back up. It keeps up in coming movie. back up whenever they meet each other at different periods of their life. But at the first period of their life, whenever they meet, I think they're coming out of the diner and mm-hmm. Harry is explaining the rules <laughs> to Sally. And he says... You realize, of course, that we can never be friends. Why not? What I'm saying is, and this is not a come on in any way, shape, or form, is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. That's not true. I have a number of men friends and there is no sex involved. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. You only think you do. You're saying I'm having sex with these men without my knowledge? No, what I'm saying is they all want to have sex with you. They do not. I do, too. They do not. Do too. How do you know? Because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him too. 
What if they don't want to have sex with you? Doesn't matter, because the sex thing is already out there, so the friendship is ultimately doomed, and that is the end of the story. Well, I guess we're not going to be friends then. Guess not. That's too bad. You were the only person that I knew in New York. Yeah, so that idea, that sort of thesis keeps arising in the movie. I forget, what is the what is the ultimate outcome? Like, do they, can they be friends without, like, what it, you know, there's a, there's a disagreement here, right? Yeah, there's a disagreement in there. And then they meet, I want to say 10 years later into the future mm-hmm. at an airport. And Harry says to her at this time, Would you like to have dinner? Just friends. I thought you didn't believe men and women could be friends. When did I say that? On the ride to New York. No, 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 no. I never said this. Yes, that's right. They can't be friends. Unless both of them are involved with other people, then they can. This is an amendment to the early rule. If the two people are in relationships, the pressure of possible involvement is lifted. That doesn't work either, because what happens then is the person you're involved with can't understand why you need to be friends with the person you're just friends with. Like it means something is missing from the relationship and why do you have to go outside to get it? Then when you say, no, 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 it's not true, nothing is missing from the relationship, the person you're involved with then accuses you of being secretly attracted to the person you're just friends with. Which you probably are, I mean, come on, who the hell are we kidding? Let's face it. Which brings us back to the early rule before the amendment, which is men and women can't be friends. So where does it leave us? Harry? Okay. Goodbye. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I think this, I think when Harry met Sally, uh, the movie sort of has that argument and tries to prove it true. Your thoughts, Charles? Uh, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, I guess. <laughs> maybe <laughs> so, there's, yeah, maybe there's uh, no answer to this question. Yeah, it's an eternal question. I think that the optimist in me says, yes, men and women yeah. can be friends without having to dread the possibility of sex. I definitely think that <laughs> we're more than just... possibility. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, no, I, I yeah, mean yeah. like in terms of like dreading yes. like ruining the relationship. I think that it can be possible. Uh, but I see what Harry is making on those points, <laughs> even though it's very Human cynical and jaded. I guess. Yeah. Uh, can I just say that Harry Metzali is actually my favorite film? Of all time. Is that your favorite film of all time? Yeah. I'm not saying it is the one. best film of all time. I'm saying it's yeah. my favorite film of all time. That's the one I do like. Doesn't that one have like sort of the interstitial things where they interview like uh, couples who are, you know, really old and they've been married for. Yeah. It has an idea that I've always wanted to implement in real life about how people met their significant others. But in the film, there's scenes interspersed throughout it where these old couples talk about how they first met. And a lot of them were saying like, oh, it was love at first sight. I, I knew it from the beginning. Others were saying like, oh, I didn't really know him at all. I thought he's kind of mysterious. And then they show what could possibly be the worst way to meet somebody, which is in Harry and Sally's case. Uh-huh. They would follow the film through their journey of how, you know, they eventually marry each other. Yeah, it's sort of like an oil and water scenario in the beginning. It seems like according to, you know, these little interviews that you're talking about, that Harry and Sally are doomed. They're never going to be able to, it, it was all working against them from the beginning. Like they hated each other from the start. But no, it's a lovely little rom-com when they get together in the end. Yeah, Nora Ephron. All right, she wrote and directed? No, I believe Rob Reiner was the director and Nora Ephron was the one who wrote the screenplay. Right. Did you know, I didn't know this until like a year ago, which I thought was really strange. Did you know that Nora Ephron knew the identity of Deep Throat? Wait, how? (laughs) She was married to Carl Bernstein, who along with Bob Woodward, they teamed up together for the Watergate scandal. And apparently, while they were married together, Carl told Nora the identity of Deep Throat. Wow, what a 
strange coincidence. Just yeah. Random trivia. Of all the people to know the identity of Deep Throat. I, oh <laughs> the God. writer of Harry Met Sally. <laughs> Maybe there are clues in that uh, film if you look closely enough. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, wait. There we go. Now we're playing it back into the theme of the episode. If you examine it close enough, you can find out all of America's conspiracy. secrets. <laughs> conspiracy theories. Uh, okay. Let's toss to our guest, right? Yeah. So our guest for today is Nathan. Yeah. My buddy Nathan, frequent collaborator. He's a photographer, visual artist, and um, I don't know why why I picked him to watch this episode. I know I wanted to ask him to watch one eventually. I guess there's a little bit of a comparison. He sort of um, delves into the supernatural, into magic a little more than uh, maybe some of my other friends, but I don't know if that's really got a strong bearing on this episode, but uh, I think it was something he would appreciate, you know, sort of how they handle magic in this episode. But I guess let's hear from him. All right. So I'm not like super familiar uh, with this show, Northern Exposure. But let me just say it's like a Twin Peaks kind of era knockoff kind of show. I'll say what what is interesting is there's like a normalization of the supernatural or the normalization of magic, which you don't really see uh, very often in a lot of shows so that i think is interesting how there's a portrayal of of uh this carnival people that in normal circumstances cinema and tv shows makes them out to look like freaks and you know like how like like american horror story or even like uh what's that one that browning movie gooba gaba one of us you know that kind of definitely thought mute boy was a little annoying and his persistence on trying to like be with this chick, even though it turned out they liked each other. I also think it's really funny, the scene where they're all at the carnival together, for some reason they just have a bottle of wine. Like, is that how they show people are in love? They just drink wine all the time. So that was really funny. They're just drinking wine, just walking around carrying a bottle. I mean, I do that. I drink wine out of the bottle though, when I'm like being sneaky, not I carry two glasses with me to the carnival. Yeah, I was also a little, like, concerned about how, like, weird that dynamic age difference was between the old guy, who was presumably her boss, and also the young chick. Like, you know, I didn't really know the backstory too much, but she was like, yeah, they almost got married, blah, blah, blah. And I swear to God, all he had to do was say he loves feet. If he would have just said, I love big feet, she probably would have, Peggy Hill had big feet. Hank Hill loved her for it, you know? Is he too good for that? I'm just saying. All he had to do was talk about how great her big feet are. All right, so last comment. I thought it was kind of, I don't know, I thought it was kind of boring. Did I hate it? No. Would I watch the whole show? No. I think not much happened. Some freakos showed up, and then the town just, like, decided to change a little bit to, to like, what the new people were doing. And uh, integrated, yeah, but, like, not much happened. You know, yeah, they integrated these foreign people, these new arrivals, but then those people left, you know, and that was about all the episode did, you know, that's about it. Could have been more supernatural, could have been weirder, but it wasn't. It's kind of normal. Okay, so I think I'm feeling Nathan's mood today. I think I'm in agreement with him. <laughs> What's that? In that this episode was kind of not great. Yeah, he, he says, you know, it's boring, didn't hate it, but... uh wasn't 
necessarily moved by it. Yeah, he was really honest in his analysis. It's one of the strangest episodes to dump a stranger for the first time into Northern Exposure, I would have to say. It's just, I don't know, like you're watching it for the first time, you're watching a circus go through, and you think there's going to be some huge plots or revelations, and then you come out the other end, and you're like, uh, it kind of yeah. looked like nothing happened. What like, just why? happened? Yeah. yeah, why am I watching this? Yeah, if you look at it on the grand scheme, next season when we're looking back at this, this is just like at least for me, remembered as, oh, it's the circus episode, you know? Yeah, that's all I'm going to glean from this, too. It's like, oh, this is the episode that they had the bear on the leash and (laughs) circus performers who somehow have a lot of knowledge of quantum physics. Yeah. Well, let's focus on uh, some of the the points that um, Nathan picks up on. Uh, He begins kind of talking about his appreciation for the the sort of normalization of the supernatural and of magic, uh, the way that Northern Exposure... Uh, overall for us, what I've noticed is yeah, the way it treats the spiritual and the unexplained is just sort of like normal. No one really bats an eye at it. It's like, that's how things work in Sicily, you know? Yeah. It's taken us, I guess, a little bit of a journey to get to this stage, this normalcy in which they approach it. Yeah. Cause it took a few episodes to get acclimated. And then as the seasons went on and they got a little bit, it's kind of what you expect now. Yeah. Their toes keep crossing the line so we're used to it and i guess for a newcomer for nathan when he was watching he was like i guess we started out in square one like this yeah i was not really familiar with what he was referencing uh when he's kind of talking about gooba gabba one of us do you remember that yeah i didn't know what he was saying on that either yeah he was referencing the film freaks uh in 1932 by todd browning uh in which sort of i guess for lack of a better term like sort of sideshow freaks are all um, cheering and inviting someone into their group, you know, (laughs) one of us, one of us. It's kind of a frightening uh, visual, but it seems pretty joyous and and pretty fun. But yeah, I thought that was actually interesting that Nathan brought it up, that there there actually really aren't any like sideshow freak, again, for for lack of a better term, that kind of uh, performers in this uh, company that comes to Sicily. Yeah, that was actually a really interesting observation that he brought up because... These people are highly educated, or at least the father and the mother are. Yeah. And even the daughter, because they're she's shopping around for parts that only Ruth Computer, Ann really knows yeah. about. Yeah. So it's showing that quote these unquote people, normal. Yeah. Quote know. unquote normal people, just with a strange profession. <laughs> yeah. So we don't really get that uh I guess typical maybe some people would say sort of the odd and freakish and dark sides, I guess. But um but really you know, I, I think it could have benefited from something like that because what they're trying to do, I guess, with these characters uh, like Stephen Gould is show that, you know, again, this like quote unquote carny, you know, it's, it's actually just sort of like a normal person, you know, and I think it would have been a little more poignant if they took someone who maybe is um, physically or outwardly looks different than a quote unquote normal person and show like the real humanity behind that person, you know, and they can be a father or a mother just the same. Yeah. Have you ever seen or read the series, a series of unfortunate events? I have it. There is one called the carnivorous carnival where the bottle air children go and work at like a roving carnival of sorts. And they make friends with a bunch of carnival freaks Uh and they all kind of have like strange talents and they look weird. And one of them is a very handsome, normal person, but he's (laughs) ambidextrous. And he's like, look at me. I'm a freak. I can move (laughs) with both arms. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So I was missing a little bit of that in this episode. I'm glad uh, Nathan drew our attention there. 
Yeah, we kind of touched on this in, in our conversation, but Nathan says, you know, the mute boy is a little annoying and persistent, you know, the flying man. Yeah, that was kind of my question to you. Is, is that a little too forward or too persistent, perhaps? I'm glad he at least uh, pointed that out. You know, it, it didn't slip past him. I think it's also very funny how he points out the visual language of uh, drinking wine in a scene means like romance. It automatically oh, yeah. equals a romantic situation. <laughs> he drinks it straight from the bottle? Yeah, yeah. that's what he was saying. And finally, again, I think you know what I'm going to say. Yeah, the hauling Shelley age gap. I think, you know, it's almost like every episode in a row, right? It is this, I remember when we were first starting this podcast, I was like, maybe it'll grow on us. I'm trying to see you know, what it's like. But I think for every newcomer to this series, it's uh, a little startling. Yeah, I don't think we've had a guest come on and say like, and for that Holly Shelling romance, I totally dig it. <laughs> like, I, I see what they're going with that. Um, yeah, I mean, what can we say? I guess it's always sort of problematic and maybe that's something that, maybe that's the challenge that the showrunners are inviting for themselves. It's like, how can we take something so uh, atypical, perhaps illegal, as you've said in past episodes, uh, and, and make it feel um, feel like the norm in Sicily or, or just, you know, something that shouldn't be frowned at. And again, like I said, no judgment. There shouldn't be judgment. However, seems to be that all of our guests uh, feel a little uncomfortable by the situation. Okay, so that's it for this week for Get Real. But what am I in for next week? The next episode is... Number 10 of season three. Title is Soulmates, like Seoul, South Korea. Oh, really? Got any predictions for that? Hmm. Uh, really obvious one. The first one that comes to mind is somebody that is of Korean descent comes and visits Sicily and one of the male characters, or female actually, now that I think about it, it could be Maggie, uh, mm. falls in love with this traveler. But I'm willing to bet things return back to the status quo this traveler leaves <laughs> all right i hope i'm wrong though because that's a very very boring plot line well um yeah i don't want to spoil anything so let's try to remember uh this uh setup that you've you've made for us and see how your prediction comes out all right charles i'll see you next week all right i'll see you next weekly Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Nathan for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening. <laughs>